faith that we've been teaching for the last several weeks. And uh, we want to start this morning from Mark chapter 11. The context of these scriptures are that Jesus, in his last week of ministry here on the earth before he went to the cross, he passes by a fig tree on the way to Bethany. He's traveling the few miles, I think it's four miles, four and a half miles, something like that, between Jerusalem and Bethany. And he passes by a fig tree that looks like it should have lit, uh, figs on it because it had leaves. But he found that it was barren and didn't have any fruit thereon, and so he spoke to it. And he cursed it, and he said, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. The next morning they're traveling back to Jerusalem from Bethany, and they pass by this fig tree, and it's dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling it to remembrance, pointed it out to Jesus and said, Jesus, our master, behold the fig tree which you cursed is withered away. And Jesus answered in verse 22, Jesus answering said unto them, have faith in God. Now, a better translation of that would be have the faith of God. The Bible indicates to us that we have the same kind of faith that God has. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 that God created man in his own image and after his own likeness for the purpose of having authority here on the earth. Now, that phrase, in his own image or after his own likeness, literally means that God made an, uh, mankind to be a duplicate of himself. He made Adam exactly as himself. And again, the purpose for that was so that he could have authority here on the earth. Well, the, the creation account that's given to us in Genesis chapter 1 tells us how that God exercised his authority to recreate the earth by the things that he said. So if the Bible is telling us that man has made an exact copy or duplicate of the Lord, then we have to understand that our authority the authority that we were created to exercise here on the earth is exercised and demonstrated through the words that we speak just as God's authority and power was exercised in the creation of the world by what he spoke. So when Jesus answered and said, have the faith of God, he's telling us that it works for anybody, not just himself. So much of the church world believes that Jesus did the miracles and the signs and the wonders he did because he was the son of God or to prove that he was the son of God. But the Bible says Jesus laid aside his heavenly power and glory and came to the earth to be a man. Which means he didn't have the same power that he had in the creation of the earth. He laid that aside. Now folks, if Jesus had did the miracles and the signs and the wonders he did because he was the son of God. And only because he was the son of God. Then how in the world could he delegate that authority over sickness and disease, for example, and to cast out devils to his disciples while he was still on the earth. If that power is reserved for the Son of God, then how could they operate in that power? So it's vitally important for us to understand that we have been given the measure of faith, the measure of the God kind of faith, according to the will of God who created us to have authority here on the earth. In other words, Jesus did not say, when Peter called to, rem his, to his remembrance the cursing of the fig tree, Jesus didn't say, don't try this at home. Jesus did not say, this is exclusively for me because I'm the son of God. He says, you have the faith of God. You have the faith of God. And then he gives us a definition of what the faith of God is. 
Verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Now folks, notice the emphasis that's put on what you say. Notice the emphasis is not just believing. The emphasis is put on the word say, or the action of saying or speaking. You'll have what you say. Now, this is the definition that Jesus gives to us from Mark 11, verse 23. The God kind of faith is believing in the heart and saying with the mouth. Now, folks, this is the area, this is the rub and the criticism that the so-called faith message generates in the body of Christ. Nobody has any problem with believing God. But the criticism comes from the, the act of speaking the word of God of calling things that be not as though they are because that's the way God does it. That's where the criticism comes. And a lot of times people will say that we put too much emphasis on speaking or saying the word of God, what we say, and so forth. But you need to understand that the, the speaking principle goes a lot further than just speaking faith for your healing or your prosperity or your peace or whatever. Look with me to, to Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat thereof. I want you to see that speaking, specifically speaking the word of God, which is the will of God, speaking is a principle that God established into the earth. Again, it goes back to, Ge to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness, and let them have dominion over the works of our hands. How do we exercise that dominion? How do we exercise that authority? Well, since we're made in the image and likeness of God, the same way he does, which is the spoken word. You remember the centurion that came to Jesus in Matthew chapter 8. Jesus marveled at his faith because he understood that authority was exercised through the words that we speak. That's what blew Jesus away. Jesus said, I haven't found so great faith as this centurion's faith in all of Israel. The implication is he should have found it among Israel if he was going to find it anywhere. But this centurion, because he understood authority, and I, I can't emphasize that too much, because he understood authority, understood that authority is exercised by the words that we speak. He was satisfied for Jesus to speak the word only rather than come to his house. And Jesus marveled and said, I haven't found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Look with me to Matthew chapter 12. Again, let's trace this principle of speaking or the principle of the spoken word. I'm going to start in verse 22, Matthew 12, verse 22. Then was brought unto Jesus one that was possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed them, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? In other words, some of the people in the crowd are saying, This has got to be the Messiah. Nobody can do the works that he did if he's not the son of God. So that when it talks about the son of David, that's a messianic term. That means some people are coming to the place where their eyes are opened as to who Jesus is. Now, Jesus really didn't claim to be the Son of God. 
he never really even claimed to be the Messiah. There were times toward the end of his ministry where he plainly uh, taught his disciples who he was and what was going to happen. But Jesus shied away from the, the reality that he was the Son of God. In the four Gospels, there are 65 times where Jesus refers to himself. 60 of those times, 60 out of the 65 times, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. He identifies with man rather than God. Of the other five that he identifies himself as the Son of God, three of those are in one context. So there were only three times in Jesus' ministry that he identified with the son of, as being the Son of God rather than the Son of Man. Now, why is that? Because he was sent to the earth to be a man, anointed of the Holy Ghost to show us the will of the Father. Not to prove himself. Not to prove his deity, not to show his power. He said over and over again, I'm not the one doing the works. He always credited that back to his Father. Because he was a man just like you and I are make up mankind. He was anointed of the Holy Ghost and that anointing enabled him to do the power to do the mighty works, to display his power, to display God's will. So the people were amazed and said, is, that, is not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. In other words, they're saying, Jesus isn't working according to the anointing of the Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost power. He's working according to the devil power. And Jesus knew the thoughts and said unto them, every kingdom that is divided itself against itself is brought to desolation and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand and if satan cast out satan he is divided against himself how shall then his kingdom stand and if i by beelzebub cast out devils by whom do your children cast them out therefore they shall be your judges but if i cast out devils by the spirit of god here he's showing where his power comes from it's not because he's the son of God. It's because he's anointed of the spirit of God. But if I cast out devils by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come to you. Folks, notice that deliverance is a part of the kingdom of God. Now, does God's kingdom change? Is God's kingdom different today than it was when Jesus was here and said these words? Kingdom of God never changes. So deliverance belongs to you and me just as much as it belonged to this person that Jesus healed. Healing belongs to you and me just as much as it belongs to the person that Jesus healed. Jesus goes on in verse 29. He says, or else how can one enter a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he first bind the strong man? And then he will spoil his house. He's talking about the devil having the keys to hell and death. He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me is scattered abroad. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Folks, that should cause some of the critics of the miracle working power of God to give pause. Verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree corrupt and its fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by its fruit. In other words, he's saying you're going to be known by what you say. O generation of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? 
For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, folks, notice this phrase, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus is saying, in different terminology, different words, but he's saying exactly the same thing that we read in Mark chapter 11, verse 23. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We looked in Luke chapter 17 where Jesus is talking about forgiveness. And the disciples asked, how often do we have to forgive? Seven times a day? And Jesus said, I say unto you, seven times 70. And the disciples freaked out. They said, Lord, you're going to have to increase our faith. And Jesus says, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you would say. In other words, he's saying you don't get faith by wanting more. You get faith by speaking. You get faith by saying what God's word says. If you need faith for healing, then the more you speak God's word concerning healing, the greater the deposit of faith is in your heart. So Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of a good treasure of the heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. Folks, how did you deposit the word in your heart? By saying it. You remember in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8, God said to Joshua, who's taking over as the leader of the children of Israel in Moses' stead, he said, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. How do you keep something from departing out of your mouth? As soon as you say it, it's gone. How do you keep it from departing out of your mouth? You keep saying it. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. Folks, meditating in the word of God is speaking and therefore planting the seed of God's word in your spirit. It's not emptying your mind like some Eastern religions would tell you. This is a spot that I usually make a joke about most Christians' minds being empty anyway. But I'm not going to do that this morning. So Bible meditation is saying the word. Bible meditation is speaking God's word for the purpose of planting it in your own heart. So he goes on to say, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. God told Joshua, and therefore is telling us, that the key to victory, the key to prosperity, the key to success in life is to speak God's word continually. Because the more you say it, the more it plants in your heart, the deeper the roots take in your own heart or in your own spirit. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So again, faith is believing in the heart and saying with the mouth. So let's back, go back to Matthew chapter 12. Verse 36 now, but I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Please notice verse 37. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Folks, our lives are controlled by the words that we speak. And again, it is a function of, the, of this thing called faith. But it's a principle that goes back even before men knew what faith was. In the Old Testament, God didn't talk to people about believing. He talked to them about obeying. He talked to them about obedience. Now, obedience to God's word is the operation of faith. It's a part of what faith does. 
But it goes, this principle of speaking goes way, way, way beyond just a limited scope that some people think that the, the word of faith, the preaching of the word that produces faith, entails or involves. I want you to turn with me to James chapter 3 now. James chapter 3. Beginning in verse 1, it says, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, this word offend really means stumble. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. Please notice what Jesus, or what the Holy Ghost is telling us through the Apostle James. He's saying, if you can learn to control your tongue, you can learn to control your whole body. It all comes down to the control of the tongue. Behold, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. No matter how big, no how strong the horse is, you can control his every movement by exerting pressure on his tongue. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great are driven to fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm whithersoever the governor listed. No matter how big a boat or a ship is, you can control it by turning the, the, by the direction of the, uh, the rudder, which is an example of the tongue. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindles. Every fire is started by a spark. No matter how destructive the fire might be, we know of situations where cities, entire cities have been burned down. It all starts with a single spark, a spark. Just one. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So, that the tongue among, so is the tongue among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beast and of the birds and of serpents and of things of the sea is tamed and has been tamed of mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing, my brethren, these things ought not so to be. That's the same thing Jesus said in Matthew 12. He said, either make the fruit of the tree good or make it corrupt. Can't be both. Does a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. What's he talking about? He's talking about the words of our mouth. Now, folks, I would submit to you that the uh, description that James gives us for the tongue, a world of iniquity and set on fire of the course of hell, that's not the way God created it to be. It's not the way Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden before the fall. One of the things that I think is most significant in considering and recognizing the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, the greatest change that occurred was that man lost control of his tongue now let me explain what i mean by that prior to the fall prior to sin and death coming into the world the garden of eden was a perfect existence 
it was an existence that was under the authority of Adam. Remember, God told them, dress and keep the garden. That means guard and protect it. See, there was an enemy already here. Adam and Eve knew the enemy was here. God didn't keep them in the dark about that. But they're operating in the Garden of Eden, doing whatever they did by the words of their mouth. In other words, they're exercising authority over what God gave them in the same manner as the God who created them to be like himself. So they're operating according to the words that they believe and therefore speak. Believe in their heart and therefore speak. Well, where's their source of information? Where's the source of the belief that they have in their heart? Folks, they're not operating in the earth according to experience. They don't have any experience. They're operating in the earth according to the truth that God has imparted to them when he walks with them in the cool of the day throughout the garden. Everything that they did, everything they said, was a result of information that was imparted to their spirits, the life of God that was within them. They're not getting information from external sources. They're not getting information from their eyes and their ears and the touch of their hands. That doesn't mean they don't have access to that information, but they're made in the image of God. They're not operating. They're not walking. They're not speaking according to the circumstances that they experience. They're operating according to the truth that God has placed in their hearts. But at the fall, when they fell, that all changed. Now they don't have any spiritual source of information. First thing it says is that when they fell, their eyes were opened and they saw they were naked and ashamed. Well, where did self-consciousness come from? From the fall. They lost control of their tongue. Now the only thing that they have to operate on in this earth is the external information and stimuli that comes from their body. That's the tongue that James is describing. But folks, now that the life of God has been imparted to us, we can reverse that. Now that the word of God has been given to us to reveal the will of the Father in every aspect of life, we can change that. We don't have to speak according to the course of nature. Our tongue doesn't have to be a a world of iniquity. We can instead speak God's word. Now, folks, if faith is believing in your heart and saying with your mouth, there are four times throughout the Old and New Testament where the Bible says the just shall live by faith. Well, what is living by faith? It's speaking God's word. The just shall live by speaking God's word. The Bible also tells us in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 that we walk by faith and not by sight. Well, what is walking by faith? Walking by speaking the word of God and not by sight. That puts us in the same position that we've just been describing with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They spoke by their, from their spirits, from their heart, before the fall. After the fall, They had no source of information except their physical bodies. And folks, you need to realize everything about the educational system of this world is based on information that came through the five physical senses. Every bit of intellectualism there is came as a result of information provided for the five physical senses. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Education is a good thing. 
people should get as much education as they can. But the highest degree or the most degrees that you could ever get here in this earth won't give you one hint of the truth that the spirit of man has authority and governs in this earth. We can only get that from the world. I mean, we can't get that from the world. We can only get that from the word, from the word of God. Now, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3 is a New Testament description of the things that occurred in Numbers chapter 13. You remember in Numbers chapter 13, it tells us that God has delivered Israel from the bondage of Egypt. He's given them the, the Ten Commandments, and he's led them to the edge of the Promised Land. It's probably two, two and a half years maybe after they crossed the Red Sea. You remember the story how that Pharaoh reneged on letting them go and came back to kill them and they had their backs to the Red Sea and God instructed Moses to stretch his hand out over the water and the waters departed they split Israel goes over on dry ground the pillar of fire keeps Pharaoh's armies from chasing after them but when the people of Israel get across to the other side that pillar of fire lifts and Pharaoh's army goes in after them well, the waters came back together on top of them and drowned the whole bunch. Two and a half years later, the children of Israel are at the edge of the promised land. The 12 spies go into the land. Ten of them come back with what the Bible calls an evil report, saying the land is a land of milk and honey for sure, but the inhabitants thereof are too great. We don't stand a chance against them. We are in, we are in our own eyes as grasshoppers, and so we are in theirs. That's a pivotal moment in the history of Israel. So much so that Paul, who I believe is the author of the book of Hebrews, is certainly his message. Paul refers that back, refers back to that point in time. So let's start reading in verse 7. It says, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works 40 years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath that they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, there, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now let me go back and remind you of what we started with in, in Mark chapter 11, verse 23. Jesus in describing the faith of God or the God kind of faith said verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea now here's the qualifier and shall not doubt in his heart and shall not doubt in his heart but shall believe that those things which he says shall come to pass he shall have whatsoever he saith. well if he's talking about not doubting in the heart then he's got to be talking about believing in the heart and this is the only qualification the only criteria that he places in this verse. He says, and shall not doubt in his heart. Well, what is doubting in your heart? The Bible identifies it right here. Verse 12 again. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you a, an evil heart of unbelief, departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Skip down with me to verse 19. So we see that they, the children of Israel, could not enter into the promised land because of unbelief. 
Now go back with me to Numbers chapter 13. Let's see some of the details again. I know we've covered this a lot. But the reason that this story is so important is because of the pivotal nature it has and describes where the will of God is concerned. See, so much of the church world thinks whatever the will of God is, it'll be done. So many people think that God's in control. Well, if God's in control, why did he give you authority in the earth? God didn't give mankind authority, and then when he fell, take it back. Man continued to have authority on the earth. <clears throat> From the time that God gave it to him, he's continued to have authority on the earth. But remember, man's information now comes from his five physical senses. And so the authority that man's exercising in the earth is by and large reinforcing the physical facts and circumstances that contradict God's word. So in Numbers chapter 13, it tells us about them going, the, ten, the 12 spies going into the land of Israel, the promised land, the land of Canaan, I should say. Let's start reading in verse 25. And they returned from searching of the land after 40 days. And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to the congregation of the children of Israel under the wilderness of Paran and to Kadesh and brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, We came into the land whither thou sentest us, and surely it flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great, and moreover we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwelt in the land of the south. The Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. God's already told them that those people are there. Shouldn't have been a surprise to them. In fact, if there were not people there, it wouldn't have been a land flowing with milk and honey. So none of this information should have been a surprise. The ten come back after having done what God told them to do or what Moses told them to do at God's direction. To, to spy out the land, to see what was going on with the land, to see what the people were like in there. All that was what they were sent to do. So that's not a problem up to this point. But notice in verse 30 it said, And Caleb stilled the people before Moses. So apparently what the ten spies were telling them even to this point was agitating the people, getting them stirred up. Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. Folks, you're hardly ever going to find a place where you realize the will of God for you in a situation unless you get quiet enough to find out where he is. God does not operate in the midst of turmoil and rioting. And one of the great benefits of speaking with other tongues, being filled with the Holy Ghost and speaking with other tongues, is that it's one way in my opinion, the best way, and it may be the only way to quieten your mind down enough to find out what God's will is. You can quieten your body by laying down in bed, but your mind will keep going a thousand miles an hour. How do you quiet your mind down? Best way I know is to speak in tongues. It quietens your mind down so that you cease getting information from your flesh and give the Holy Ghost a chance to bring revelation to you and direction for you from within. So Caleb steals the people. He says, we can, go, we can do this. Let us go up at once and take it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, we be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. Now, folks, remember two and a half years earlier. 
God demonstrated his power against Pharaoh. Well, Pharaoh's army was too big for the children of Israel too, wasn't it? That didn't keep God from delivering them. See, if they had taken to heart the things that God had done and understood why he did them, then they would have come back saying, oh boy, this is going to be good again. Because these people are strong and they probably think they're a lot stronger than us, but what they haven't counted on is that God is on our side. Folks, when you learn to think according to God's plan and purpose, when you learn to think according to what God has done for you through the work of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, then big battles don't frighten you anymore. Wigglesworth said, Smith Wigglesworth said that great victories come out of great battles. Great faith comes out of great tests. Well, most of us are trying to avoid the battles in the tests. And, of course, we never can. The circumstances of life and the tests of our faith are going to come to us whether we want them or not. So we might as well settle it and prepare for them. Notice verse 32. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying... The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we were in their sight. Now, folks, without taking time to turn to look at these things, let me point out a couple of things and bring a couple of things to your remembrance. For example, in Mark chapter 5, it tells us about the woman with the issue of blood. Beginning in verse 25, the story goes in a certain woman which had an issue of blood and had suffered many things of many physicians, had this thing for 12 years, suffered many things of many physicians, had spent all of her living and was nothing better but rather grew worse. When she heard of Jesus, she came and depressed behind and touched his garment. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus immediately knowing in himself, that virtue or power had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And the disciples said, Master, the multitude throngeth thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? But he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, verse 34, Daughter, your faith has made you whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Well, since Jesus credited her healing to the faith that she exercised, then what she said, when she heard of Jesus, she began to say, if I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. Then that had to be your faith speaking. Remember the God kind of faith. Whosoever shall say unto the mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. So when she said, if I can touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. That's her faith speaking. Jesus confirms that. He identifies that in verse 34. Daughter, your faith has made you whole. Your faith made you whole. Your faith caused what you said to become a reality in your flesh. You got what you said. So it was her faith speaking. Here we see their doubt speaking. See, folks, faith speaks, but doubt does too. Doubt is really... A form of faith, just faith in the wrong thing. 
We saw in Hebrews chapter 3 that the Bible identifies that as an evil heart of unbelief. Here it just says they brought up an evil report saying, well, we know now what that evil report was. That evil report was unbelief. And as a result, they wind up spending 40 years in the wilderness. Now, I can't go through this story without making mention of chapter 14 and verse 28. Because here's that principle again that God expects them to know. He tells Moses, say unto the people of Israel, as truly as I live, saith the Lord, as you have spoken in my ears, so will I do unto you. One translation says it's the oracle of God. What is an oracle of God? It's an unchanging eternal principle. Now, folks, you need to understand something. This is not just the principle that works on the earth. This is a principle that works for eternity. You will always have what you say, not just here on the earth. You will always have what you say. God's not any different after this earth goes through all the things that we know of concerning the church age and the tribulation and Jesus comes and sets up his uh, millennial reign here on the earth. The God kind of faith is the same because God's eternal. Even after we leave the earth, even after this church age or this, the current age of the world is realized or finished. God was a faith God before the world ever was created. You've been created in his image, an eternal being. And so faith is going to be necessary for whatever comes after this world. Just as much as it is while we're here. What I'm saying is this, folks. If you don't learn faith here, you're going to have to learn it there. I'm not sure how we're going to learn it there because there's no resistance there. The thing that helps grow and, and temper our faith, purify our faith, is the resistance that we have here in this natural realm. Well, what happens when this natural realm passes away? God's still a faith God. Faith is still the eternal principle. How are we going to learn there? I don't have an answer for that, folks. I don't know. But I do have a response. And that is I'm going to learn it here so that it doesn't matter. <clears throat> so here's the, uh, the eternal. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let me see if I can knock this down with some water. <clears throat> Here in verse 28. <clears throat> this is the real good part of public speaking. <clears throat> Notice Numbers 14, verse 28 again. Say unto them, Moses, tell them, as truly as I live, saith the Lord. How does God live? He lives eternally and unchangingly. As truly as I live, saith the Lord. As they have spoken in my ears, so will I do unto them. Now, folks, that's an eternal principle. That's the same thing that governs God's power at coming to bear in your life now. As you speak in his ear, so does he undo us. Now, folks, the Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. We've given you five witnesses already. Now, we've talked about this situation with the children of Israel, and this is the great failure of Israel. No question about it. 
Hebrews chapter 3 refers us to that. Paul doesn't have to explain to them about the day of provocation. They know what he's talking about. Israel is well-schooled and well-informed on the failures because of their unbelief. But the children of Israel do go into the promised land. It's 40 years later. But they do go into the promised land. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 6. Now here's what I want you to realize. God's will was for the people of Israel to go into the promised land in Numbers 13. That will was detoured. It was aborted because of the evil heart of unbelief of the people. And everybody in that story in Numbers chapter 13 got exactly what they said. The ten spies said it'd be better for us to, uh, to have died, to have already been dead. They died that day that they came back. The judgment of God fell upon them and the, the ten spies and their families were wiped out. The children of Israel believed the majority report, which is nearly always wrong. And so they died over the next 40 years into the wilderness. Caleb and Joshua were the two of the 12 spies that said, we can go up and take the land. And they did. 40 years later. Folks, the unbelief around you will hinder you for a period of time from receiving the things of God. I've seen people come to receive healing, come to find the, the truth of believing in the heart and saying with the mouth and taking hold of the promises of God and go right back into the dead church they came out of and within a short period of time they, lose, they lost what God had given. Everybody gets what they say. And the problem with hanging around with people that are doubters, unbelievers, and such, is that eventually they'll have an influence on you and bring you down to their doubt. Joshua chapter 6. Joshua is taken over for the children of Israel, taken over for Moses as the leader of the children of Israel. And there are some remarkable things that have taken place. God gives him instruction on being strong and courageous to go in and take the promised land which is kind of interesting because most people think that if God's with you, there's no reason for you to have to be strong or courageous. But even though God is with you, there are times where we're going to have to face the enemy and it's going to look like it's not working. That's where strength and courage comes in. When everything around you looks like the word of God's not true, you stick to speaking the word only. So God tells Joshua how to take the land First thing he instructs him to do is for the priest to take the Ark of the Covenant and walk into the Jordan River. Now when they do that, as soon as their feet touch the water, it says the Jordan River parted. But it gives us some additional insight in later chapters that the water began backing up for a matter of 12 miles, a distance of 12 miles, so that the cities that were north of where the Jordan, water, Jordan River began to part. They all became aware that the river is backing up and separating even in front of their towns too. It was quite a statement that God made concerning his people. So the priests go and stand in the middle of the river until all of Israel goes over to the, to the other side. And then when the priests come out of the water, the water joins back together again. 
And Joshua sends two spies into the city of Jericho, two to represent himself and Caleb and not the other tribes. And they find a, a harlot, a prostitute in the city. And she says some things to them that are quite revealing. She says, where have you guys been? Forty years ago, we had heard about how God parted the Red Sea and destroyed Pharaoh's army. And we know that this land is yours. Where have you been? Now, folks, these are the ones that the ten spies came back saying, they see us as grasshoppers. They didn't. See, not all of the things the devil tells you other people see about you are true either. So they make a deal with Rahab to protect her and her family when they come to take the land. Let's start reading in verse 1. Now Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None without, went out and none came in. And the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given thine, into thine hand Jericho and the king thereof and the mighty men of valor. Can I ask you a question? What is it about the city being shut up with the biggest walls that they've ever seen around any city in the world this is the greatest test the greatest situation that they've ever faced what is it about the city being shut up caused God to say see, Jer see Joshua I've given you the city why, are, why is the city shut up because they're afraid of the people see from the outside of the walls it just looks like the city is well fortified from the inside of the walls the people are questioning whether this wall is going to be able to stop a God that parts the Red Sea and now parted the Jordan River. He's still in the splitting the seas business, even 40 years later. See, we have to learn to look at things the way God sees them. That's why it's so important for us to put the Word of God in our heart because the Word of God is truth. The circumstances we surround us, that are surrounding us, those aren't always true. They may be factual. But there's a big difference between physical realities and truth. You remember Jonah when he was swallowed by the fish? In the middle of the fish, he said, those that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. In other words, Jonah was smart enough to know God well enough that even though this is brought about by his own disobedience in running away from God and what God wanted him to do, he knows that the fish is not greater than the one that created the fish. He recognizes in the horrible conditions that he must have been in. See, a lot of times I think people get the idea that a giant fish or a whale would be so big that Jonah would have enough room as we have in the room to move around or do whatever. But he is probably cramped up in such small quarters that if claustrophobia is a problem, he's got a problem. But Jonah called the fish that he was in a lying vanity. Well, what is it lying against? It's lying against the truth of God's word and the victory that that word brings. Whatever is facing you that looks like it's going to overtake you, that's a lying vanity too. For the Bible says that we overcome even by our faith. So he says, 
See, Joshua, I have given into your hand Jericho and the king thereof and the mighty men of valor. And you shall compass the city, all men of war, all ye men of war, and go round about the city once. This do for six days. One time a day for six days. And seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns. And the seventh day you shall compass the city seven times, and the priests shall blow with the trumpets. And it shall come to pass that when they, all, they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all of the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. And Joshua the son of Nun called the priest and said unto them, Take up the ark of the covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said unto the people, Pass on and compass the city, and let him that his arm pass on before the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass when Joshua had spoken unto the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns passed on before the Lord and blew with the trumpets in the ark of the covenant, and the Lord followed him. And the armed men went before the priests that blew with the trumpets, and the rearward came after the ark, the priests going on and blowing with the trumpets. Now notice verse 10. Verse 10 is pivotal. And Joshua had commanded the people. He's already done this. He had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout, nor make any noise with your voice, neither shall any word proceed out of your mouth until the day I bid you shout, then shall you shout. Now, folks, fast-forwarding through the story, they do exactly what God tells them to do. They go around the city one time every day for six days. Seventh day, they go around seven times. At the end of the seventh time, Joshua commands the people, commands the priests to blow the horns, commands the people to shout, and the wall fell down flat. Now, the wall was 100 feet tall and 50 feet thick. So if the wall just falls down flat like that, you still got a 50-foot barrier to overcome. Well, fortunately, God knew that. I'm sure there were a lot of people that wanted to make sure that they could help God by giving him the information. Just like we're tempted to do in our situations too. But where it says it fell down flat, it literally means the, the ground opened up, the walls went down, and so it was a smooth surface. Now here's why verse 10 is pivotal. Verse 10 tells us what Joshua had learned about God and about people. It, nowhere does it tell us that Joshua did this because God told him to. Joshua just knew how people operated, how it works. And so he commanded the people that they were not to speak a word for seven days. Now, this is not just not speak a word when you're going around the city. He commands them not to speak until he gives the order seven days from now. So no matter what they see, no matter what they observe when they walk around the walls of Jericho, they're not allowed to say anything. When they come back to the campfire at night, they may be looking at each other with big eyes because of how threatening that wall seemed, how invincible that wall appeared. But they can't say a word. They can't say a word. You know what the difference was between the greatest failure in Israel's history in Numbers 13 when the children of Israel believed the ten spies as opposed to when Joshua takes the city 
takes the promised land, which is the greatest victory that Israel ever experienced. You know the difference between the greatest defeat and the greatest victory? Concerning the victory, they refused or were unable to speak against God's promise. The only difference, it's not a difference in the people, it's not a difference in the, the second generation being better people than they were, than their forefathers were, their parents were. It has nothing to do with any of that. It has to do with one and only one thing, and that was they used their mouth effectively. Now, if you go back into the earlier chapters, beginning in verse 1, you'll find out that the people come to Joshua and they say, look, we'll follow you. We'll go wherever you tell us to go. We'll do whatever you tell us to do. You just be strong and of good courage. Then God tells Joshua, be strong and of good courage. That's the only difference. The children of Israel recognize that it is the will of God for us to go in, no matter what our fathers did, no matter what our parents did, no matter how bad they messed up. This is the will of God, and we can take the land. The only difference was the things that they said. That's it. That's the only difference there is. You know the difference between your defeat versus your failure or versus your victory? Your words. That's it. That's the only thing that made the difference. Was God just as willing to do it for their fathers 40 years earlier? Absolutely. Was it God's fault that they didn't go into the promised land originally 40 years ago? Nope. Whose fault was it? The Bible says it was their evil art of unbelief that forfeited the will of God for their lives. Now, folks, you can think of how many contexts to put this in. How many things do we see people in the body of Christ where they're forfeiting what God has done for them through the work of Jesus, the sacrificial and substitutionary work of Jesus, because of the words that they speak. And help me figure this out. How much of the church world even knows that the authority that God has given us, first of all, knows that we have been given authority here in the earth, and then secondly, knows that the authority that we've been given here in the earth is exercised through the words that we speak? Certainly a minority. But how many people are in the dark on that subject? 70%? 80%? You tell me. It's far and away the majority of the body of Christ. No question about that. Now, folks, if you were the devil, knowing that God had given authority unto mankind, the smartest thing that you could do is keep them in the dark about having that authority. And secondly, keep them in the dark about the unchanging and eternal principle that you have what you say. So what does the church world do? It tries to destroy the ones that believe. It tries to ridicule and destroy the ones that believe in speaking God's word and refuse to say anything other than what his word says. And there's the controversy on the faith message right there in a nutshell. See, the controversy in the body of Christ concerning faith is not about believing God. It's about the words that you speak. Nobody cares if you believe God as long as you're quiet about it. The problem is being quiet about it is what keeps it from coming to pass on your, on your behalf. So in effect, the devil wants to be the one that has the voice. He wants to be the only one that has a voice. He wants your voice to be stifled. He wants your voice to be silent. 
And so he influences other Christians, gets them to believe the lie rather than believe the truth so that you and I will be intimidated to say what's really true and to speak God's word. That's the controversy. It's not about faith. It's not about believing. It's about the confession of your, of your mouth. Remember what God told Tim, uh, what, um, oh, what's the guy's name that wrote the book? Paul. I'll get there sooner or later. You remember what Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 12? He said, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. What is the good fight of faith? It's refusing to say anything other than what God's word says and holding out till the end. The end being the place where your faith produces results. Folks, your faith will always produce results if you're faithful to hold on to it. Your words will always come to pass. So keep speaking God's word. Keep speaking God's word. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. By your words, you're justified. And by your words, you're condemned. These are eternal truths that will never change. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for revealing your word to us. We thank you for making it simple enough for us to understand. We thank you, Father, for the eternal and unchanging principle that we will have what we say. So, Father, we make a confession before you. I'd like for all of you to repeat this after me. In the name of Jesus, according to the word of God, Jesus took my infirmities and carried my disease. Therefore, I declare that I am healed in Jesus' name, that I was healed by the stripes of Jesus. I say, that you are the God that gives me power to get wealth. That you might establish your covenant. The same covenant you made with Abraham. Even unto me in this day. I say in the name of Jesus. That the righteousness of God is mine. I am righteous. I will always be righteous, and I stand in that righteousness to take hold of the things that Jesus purchased for me with his own blood. Thank you, Father, that your word is true and that my words come to pass. In Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah. Let's all stand. Now, while you're standing, let's lift our hands and thank God because what we said is true. Not because we see it, not because we feel it, but because the Word declares it. We bless you, Father. We magnify your holy name. What a privilege it is to walk in the Spirit, not according to the things that we see, but to walk according to the truth of your Word. We love you, Father. We magnify your holy name. Hallelujah. Everybody that agrees with that, say amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Okay, we're going to have a time of prayer. I'll turn it over to Beth. But if those of you who are not staying for prayer can slip out quietly, that'll help us get started.